On this episode of The Playbook, I have Grammy-nominated artist Ryan Leslie, who graduated Harvard at 19. So for all you entrepreneurs out there trying to answer the question, should I go to college or not? I think Ryan has some great insight for you. This is Entrepreneurs The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host and CEO of Sports One Marketing, David Meltzer. This is Dave Meltzer, CEO of Sports One Marketing, here with Entrepreneur of the Playbook, and I'm so excited. I got another Ivy Leaguer, another Harvard guy. Sorry, Jeremy Lin. We got Ryan Leslie here. What's up, brother? How are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, you kind of are who I wanted to be, or I should say, <laughs> you're, you're really who my mom wanted me to be. Okay. <laughs> um, you, you know, you perfect score on the SAT. Uh, how old were you when you went to Harvard? 15 years old. 15, graduated yeah. 19. Yeah, senior by 19, uh, delivered the Harvard oration. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I did that, honestly, I did that because that's what I think my parents really expected of me, and my diploma now hangs in my dad's office. That's cool, and right. he deserves it, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's Seriously. Exactly. I, I joke around because my mom always said, you know, first of all, the fetus wasn't fully developed till you graduated with a graduate degree from an Ivy League school. Wow. And you're either a doctor, mm-hmm. a lawyer, or a failure. And, and those kind of thought process. Now, I'm also the reason I held my younger brother back. Now, all I have five siblings. All of them went to the Ivy Leagues, except mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my younger brother, uh, not the youngest, the one one year younger than I, got a 1580 on his SAT. Mm-hmm. They didn't allow him to move ahead in grades like you mm-hmm. because they didn't want me to feel bad. Wow. <laughs> right? Okay. So he, but uh, he protested the one question that he missed. He was summa cum laude at Harvard, mm-hmm. graduated three years, mm-hmm. um, is exceptional scholar. Right. What's the difference though? Because you're also a great entrepreneur. I, I wouldn't work with my brother. He's not a good businessman. What do you Why think? would you say that? He's not. Rabbi. He's a rabbi. He's okay. a great man. Okay. okay. But, but I don't think he could run a business. I don't think he's a great operator. Mm-hmm. He thinks differently. Right. I find that a lot of academics, there's a saying that A students teach the world, the B and C students run it. Right. So I was one of those guys. But how do you get a, both? I was one of the B and C guys. I actually yeah, but at I Harvard, was, you're, I mean, you were yeah. so young. Come on, you're yeah. an academic. Yeah, you I mean, academic I was mind. an academic all the way up to getting to Harvard. Once I got into Harvard, I literally was on academic probation three times like, every so other like semester. Gates and Zuckerberg. You got there out of a certain type of genius, but you have more emotional intelligence. Is that fair? I would say that I just really wanted to do music, and so I, I chose my course load to allow me the most time and latitude to be able to do music. That meant taking graduate level courses because I only had to go to class once per semester. And then I might even miss that class. Nice. You know, so that's why I would be on the academic probation. And I had a mentor uh, who was at the business school. His name was Sandy Green. And three times he would go and advocate on my behalf in front of the, the, the administration school. board and say, look, this guy, is, he's, he's going to be something special. He just has you know, passions that are outside the, of the curriculum. When you're that young, one of the things you know, in business is getting along and motivating other people. I call it connecting emotionally, mm-hmm. right? We, we have to connect emotionally. My biggest fear of going to a school like that at such a young age is that we could you know, stifle your emotional connection to people, that you're so hyper-focused in on, you're obviously a hyper-focused person, mm-hmm. but where did the ability, like you're so charismatic mm-hmm. and you, you have mm-hmm. this great anonymity to you that I think 
you know, attracts people. How did you develop that? Because most people that go to school, as I see at a very young age, they just delve into their specialty. And, you know, I call them the biggest extrovert that they are is they look at my shoes when they talk to me instead of their own. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I would say that uh, from a very early age, I always wanted to perform. And I also believe that when you move around a lot as a youngster, my parents are Salvation Army officers. It's organized like the military. I went to four different high schools in the three years that I went to high school. So you immediately have to learn how to make friends quickly. And I found that, you know, being able to crack a joke, sing, dance, rap, whatever it was that I was doing, that allowed people to feel like, oh, okay, this is somebody that, you know, I'm interested in. I, I would love to strike up that relationship. So I had a lot of great relationships, I think, in my life have always really revolved around this idea of being an entertainer in some way. And um, it's strange, though, that you would say that entertainers are actually outside of the stage that they're on. They're still relatively introverted. Yeah, and same with a lot of different uh, athletes as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Ricky Williams was one of my clients and great friends. And, right. You know, uh, Marshall Falk is another guy that mm. is introverted, you know, but here they're playing in front of even my business partner, Warren Moon. Wow. Right. He has a more closed right. personality um, to that. And then you have, you know, Michael Irvin, which is the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, there is still another transition, though. So here you are, a great entertainer, but that doesn't make you a great entrepreneur. <laughs> Where did that skill set or, you know, transfer over that transition? And in what age were you at, at when you started becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, I would say uh, necessity breeds innovation. And uh, at some point in time, I decided, look, I want to learn more about the business. There was, a, there was a period of time where I was super hyper-focused and I wanted someone else to run my business for me. I just wanted to do what an artist does, travel, <laughs> living, and living very, very fast for you know my mid-20s. And I wanted someone to handle, handle my business, handle my accounting, handle the management, handle the relationship management. I just wanna be in the studio. I just wanna be on stage. And then I started to realize that um, you know there's a certain uh, window of time. I think it happens as well in sports where you're at your prime in that, in that like beautiful sort of space where the peak of your athleticism and youth kind of match together and you're explosive, right? And then age just sets in. And for me, I wanted to make sure that, you know, whenever I move beyond that sort of peak time, I could still live the way I wanted to live. And I really, very early on, got an appetite for just having the freedom to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, for as long as I wanted, with whoever I wanted. and you need to have a real sense of where your money is, is going and how your money is growing in order to be able to extend that for your own life and then even better extend it for generations to follow. And so I think I really, um, we live in an information age and when you decide to go acquire the knowledge, it's actually accessible and available. Yeah. And so I just dug in and uh, I, learned, I learned how to make it happen. When I look at your career and you know, study it, it's productivity and accessibility. One of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, think about and don't understand is they look at people like us that have great success at a young age. You were younger than I was, but at least I was a millionaire nine months out of law school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they look at it and say, well, you know, you're self-made. I want to ask you a question. Still today, I'm sure you have mentors. Of course. Dead and alive. Of course. Right? And we have all this access to content, like you of said. Course. Tell me three mentors that you have, dead or alive, and why they're your mentors. Yeah, I would say, obviously, my mother and father, 
they're separate mentors, but I'll join them together sure, so I, we don't cheat, right? Yeah. Uh, and I would say that really them being immigrants coming to the United States, understanding how important that American dream is to them in just a concept, in just sort of a brass ring that you can go and actually acquire, that for me really instilled those early kind of um, really passions for education so that I could live up to their expectations of living a life and achieving more than they may have been able to with their limited resources. Isn't, right? it, isn't it amazing? My mom was a second grade teacher, yeah. but she instilled in six kids this expectation yeah. that we had to live up to. Yeah. And meanwhile, like, you know, as a five-year-old, I, I could have just looked back and go, what are you talking about? Like, I'm supposed to be super successful and, yeah. you know, go to law school and do all yeah, these things yeah, you yeah. think I can do. You're a teacher. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And your parents were working for Salvation Army. Yes, absolutely. And yet, you know, our heads were like, I got to make my mom and dad Big proud. Big time. Big and, time. In fact, I still, my dad passed away and my wife went to a, a psychic or whatever, you mm. know, had a reading. And yeah. my dad butts in. They're like, who's this rude guy? And like, literally came through to tell me that he was proud of me. And wow. I'm 51 years old, 10 years older than you. Yeah. And I'm sitting there in my head going, crying like I literally yeah. tears on my face like I still needed my dad's you know approval yeah, that he's course. proud of me but of anyway course. so that, that's a perfect mentor so that, that's one um and nowadays I mean I really have uh I also feel like I have a peer mentor and I think that's important sometimes people think mentorship has got to be you know someone older more yeah. successful etc and I've got a partner of mine by the name of uh, Rashid Richmond who I consider to be a peer mentor that's and awesome. the reason I call him a peer mentor is that he always sort of was an oracle to me so he was one of the first guys to come to me and say look MySpace is going to change the way music is discovered and distributed and he didn't just actually say and predict it he actually came with a, a game plan that we used to break the first internet pop star and then he talked to me about cryptocurrency super early on and then yeah. he talked to me about what was going to happen in terms of like electronic dance music very very early on and so he's a kind of a trend predictor and so um, he's a great sounding board and I consider him to be a peer mentor That's a great right mentor. and then I would say as a third uh, you say dead or alive yeah, right yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the the late Ed Woods Ed Woods uh, was my really one of the first managers that I had in the music business and I think it's important obviously as a mentor for somebody to also be really real about who they are so that uh, in that transparency I could see the characteristics that maybe I also didn't want to adopt for my own pathway and he never faulted me for challenging him uh, in the ways that he conducted business or decisions that he wanted to make we eventually parted ways because like I said I wanted to take business into my own hands but during those early years formative years I saw the way that he built relationships. I saw the way that he really loved the music industry. And uh, it really became uh, that kind of relationship that I could take the greatest pieces and I could also challenge him as well. That's awesome. And just to shift gears, one of the most common questions people ask me is, how do you stay still inspired? And every once in a while I get somebody you know, on the playbook mm -hmm. or my television show and mm -hmm. they're like, beaming of light. I, mm -hmm. I call it connected to goodness, right? Mm -hmm. Like just, it's flowing through you. You live an inspired life, I can tell. What do you think that secret, you know, I explain to people what I think it is, but what do you think the secret sauce is to living an inspired life consistently, persistently, mm -hmm. enjoying the pursuit of your potential? You, you, yourself and Millie, you're super high energy, but you, you, every day you're inspired. Is, yes, is that true? Yes, absolutely. How do you stay inspired? I, I mean, listen, you have to dream 
impossible dreams. That's what I believe. And I believe very, very strongly in, in maintaining and nurturing the childlike imagination that so many teachers and people and naysayers would try to stifle, right? That childlike imagination of like, hey, I could do anything. I could touch anyone. We could go to space. We could build a tunnel underneath LA. We can, you know, completely revolutionize the texting uh, protocol, all of those kinds of dreams. And, you know, I think it started very early when I was like, hey man, I could, you know, I could go overseas and, and do shows and sell out audiences. I could be on the radio. Those dreams are actually now, I, I think, almost um, even more accessible due to the fact that social media gives us a platform where we have distribution and we have discovery. And so for me, being the kind of dreamer that I am, I wanted to dream of even more impactful, more impossible dream. And I think when you have that kind of childlike approach to imagination and dreaming, you will always stay up later at night, wake up earlier because something's really advancing you forward that you feel and know for sure is gonna be valuable. And I agree, right? I, I believe in imagination principles that we always, just like action principles, discipline, strategy, and awareness that, yeah. to effectuate things, that people don't realize that there's a system to imagining. Right? Sure. And if we do dream, I always say, just think of the math. When you think about what you want, if you know your what, yeah. it, it's a mathematical advantage because now you have a possibility over nothingness. Yes. If you become inspired, the possibility, and you learn how to imagine, you don't let other people stifle us, which from the day we're born, all it's, you know, yes, yes. right? The day, yes. right? it's already controlled. But that possibility, when you're inspired, becomes a probability. Yes. And where I think the, the you have these two schools. I got people that I'm trying to coach that are huge dreamers, mm -hmm. but they don't know how to effectuate it. And mm -hmm. then I have like, you know, the kids at Harvard, you, some of your friends in mm -hmm. Ivy Leagues, they can effectuate anything. They can sit right. down with Excel and, yes. and, but there's no dreaming. Mm -hmm. It's like, they almost say that's impossible. Mm -hmm. when you, instead of like, here's my dream, you know, very few people can do both. How do you now, you take your what, and now you have your why, your inspiration, how do you do the how? Man, you have to fall in love with the, with the process, you know? And I've literally fallen in love with the process of literally watching. And it started, like I said, roots in music, having a concept, having that creative inspiration, knowing that creativity is the closest you're ever gonna be to God, which is why when we create an actual human being, right? In the absence of me having children, every single one of my songs is like a child. That's the closest we can be to God-like, right? And so the ability to understand how the process works, right? And knowing that that process, it's more than just getting to the destination, it's about enjoying the journey. And so for me, waking up and saying, okay, I gotta learn how to code to make this happen, or I gotta learn Excel. Right. better to make this happen. I gotta learn how to you know, program a website. I gotta learn what a drip campaign is. I gotta learn what SEO is. I gotta learn this stuff. That sort of voracious appetite for knowledge as it applies to your inspiration, uh, when you fall in love with that process, that's the way that I feel like you can actually put them together and get where you want to get. Yeah, when you're in love with the pursuit, yes. right? And I tell people, you know, my friend's Chris Gardner, Pursuit of Happiness is wow. his movie. Yes, but I always say, no, no, no. Happiness is the pursuit. Yes. There's no pursuit of happiness. Yes. It's when I'm pursuing, that's when I'm happy. And I find that people understand process and pursuing. They understand pivoting. Where the problem I have coaching a lot of professional athletes is they're taught not to quit. Mm -hmm. And you can't pivot 
uh, in a football game, you know, if it's fourth down, right. you, you have the fourth down, I get you don't quit until right. the, the clock ends. Right. The difference is the clock doesn't end in entrepreneurship. No. Right? It's not finite. So you can't have the same attitude. You've got to say, okay, now where do I pivot from here mm-hmm. when I'm enjoying the process without feeling a loss? You know, and a lot of people say, we can't quit on business. I said, you want to be successful. Forget what you do. Yes. Think about this. Stay in business. Yes. Like yes. your business, like mine. Like I went from, you know, law school to technology, mm-hmm. right? To and when technology went from internet to wireless proxy servers, like, right? Right. Transcoding the internet, right? Into you know the first smartphone for Samsung. I was a CEO yeah. there. Then jumped to Lee Steinberg, and in between was a VC. All these things, and they're like, you've had so many different. Car-. I'm like, no, no. I, I've had one career. Right. I'm pursuing my potential as a business person. Beautiful. Right. These are just the content. Beautiful. Beautiful. And you're you're one of the first people. I'm looking at your career, going. Wow, he's kind of like me. That you 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 can't reverse engineer my life. I can't mm-hmm. teach someone. Well, how do you become CEO of Lee Steinberg? Well, go to law school. I'm like, right. if you exactly, I, I went bankrupt in between too. Mm-hmm. Would that be advice? Mm-hmm. But I know that helped me get to where I'm at. Yeah. That was part of my process. Yes, right. The yes. biggest lessons I've learned, biggest miracles. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned, or biggest miracle that you've taken from all the pivoting in your career? Yeah, I think really uh, it comes down to understanding how you can give more. That's the biggest All right, you won me over, ever, man, right? sorry. How, 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 <laughs> MVP, <okay>. right? <laughs> Seriously, how, how can you give the most? What, what, what allows you to give the most? There was a, definitely a great deal of selfish ambition, self-interest in being a musician, right? I knew that the girls were screaming. I knew that there was money. I knew that there was travel. Take I knew that parents. there was, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, you have that sort of like self-interest. And then I started to realize that there was a ceiling to that self-interest, right? Even somebody like a Jay-Z or, um, you know, anybody that's out there that sells Michael Jackson, millions of records, right? He's touched a lot of people, but there's still a ceiling to it because music is subjective. And so that's really what woke me up to this concept of building technology that could have objective value and it would remove that ceiling. So if somebody didn't like my music, it would turn them off. They wouldn't derive the value, even if I'm writing about a heartbreak or rapping about, you know, being successful, et cetera. If that's not their genre of music, we hit a ceiling, that message doesn't get communicated. And so the ability to actually work on a product that could have objective value, regardless of taste, regardless of, um, you know, what vertical they wanted to use it, that for me was uh, a- a- an indication that I could give more. And so that lit that fire that wakes me up every day and keeps me up at night. Yeah, Ryan, I mean, you allow things to come through you. You allow them to come, you add value, and you give them away. And that's truly inspirational, not only to you, but to other people. I'm going to finish with this question is, um, you're a musician, you understand vibration. I believe that we can only be aware of that which vibrates equal to or less than us. So I'm constantly trying to raise my vibration, my potential, Mm -hmm. right? So I can be aware of more. Mm -hmm. There's a frequency to everyone. Yeah. And the frequency has, I think, three components. One, one is the strength of the signal, yeah. the, the width of the signal, right? And then the actual signal, the, the yeah. frequency, and how many people can hear that. Yeah, yeah. When I build content, including this podcast, I like to bring guests on that, that have all three of those components. I want the, the biggest frequency so I can attract as much of the 8 billion people on Earth that I can. Yeah visually, audibly, and in person, right? All these people watching us on the fourth fourth wall we're not supposed to break, they're feeling us. Yeah. What does it mean to you? Because so many people ask me, define, find your frequency. I want to know from a musician and an artist and an entertainer's point of view and, 
you know, obviously a content guy. What does that mean if I say, you know, I'm coaching you and say, man, you gotta find your frequency. What does that mean to you? Yeah, for me, I think it's uh, being in that place where you feel comfortable to be yourself. And in music, specifically even in vocals or even with an instrument, right? For a long, for the longest time, I, you know, really studied Stevie Wonder's career and the fact that he could do all these runs and he had this incredible range. And then, you know, Mariah Carey came out, she had a five octave range. And then, you know, I would chase that. I would chase that frequency. Say, oh man, I'm not a great singer unless I can hit these runs or I can hit these high notes, etc. And then I found that the records that people related to the most were the ones where it seemed like I wasn't trying, where I wasn't actually trying to be someone that I wasn't, but was just very centered, grounded, comfortable, confident in the delivery of what I was doing. And so I think finding your frequency is feeling that, feeling that, and it's fine to actually, you know, shoot and, and use references and, you know, aspire to whatever you want to aspire. But at some point, you've got to cancel out all the noise, find that place where you're most comfortable, centered, confident. And I think that's really where you find your frequency. My frequency, I found it that way. Yeah, and I think we got Ryan Leslie, no one's better at getting out of your own way and really developing that frequency, not caring what anybody else thinks. I think I am yeah. is that frequency for yeah. you. You are who you are. Yes. And it's, I know the noise, whether it's our parents, the people who love us most, you know, one of the things that discourages me most about being a mentor is when people listen to other people and then when they get what the other people wanted for them and yeah. they're resentful of it, yeah. they're wondering why. Yeah. Find your faith in yourself. Put your faith, though, you know, I'd rather have people hate me for who I am or hate this podcast for what it is yeah. than love me for who I'm not. Right. And it took me That's a true. lot longer than you. you. You were younger, but it took me a long time to be me and realize, you know what, more people love me now because I know who I am. Yes. And I know I'm, I'm faulty and flawed, and I illuminate those flaws so other people feel comfortable being themselves as well, instead of putting conditions and judgments on everybody and attacking thoughts. So for sure. Thank you for enlightening us, man. Thank I look you, forward brother. to a long relationship. Yes, sir. You are yes, my sir. kind of guy. Yes, sir. And anybody that's listening, watching, if you want to connect with me, yes, literally, my cell phone number is public textryan.com that's the url leave your number i'll text you right back and that's my real number hey man this is a guy that gives out his cell phone like i do yeah i you know wow i will be calling you okay boss. Thanks. we got ryan leslie this is dave Meltzer with entrepreneurs the playbook well, i hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the playbook as much as me on a personal note i just wanted to thank everyone for making the playbook such a success don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.